Hello and welcome to Cast Podcast. I am one of your two hosts, Thomas Brancato, host at MI Cynic, and I am joined by Efren Torres. Hello, my name is Efren Torres and I am Chief of Station, <laughs> precisely at Chief of Stations. Um, this is a podcast of podcasts. One of the things that um, I was actually looking forward to in this style of podcast that we're doing is uh, a bit of a ping pong back and forth between mm-hmm. um, some of some of the you know the episodes that you've put out recently that I've uh, admired and um, and was intensely interested in and um, and so I thought this would be a good opportunity to to have a bit of a, a ping pong between us. Without further ado, with your blessing, Efren, I'd love to. Well, perhaps we can start with a quick recap of of the episode in question, and then um, and then maybe I can ask you some questions about uh, about that episode in particular. Um, the first of which I've got uh, here on the matter of diversity and uh, professional experience, and this was uh, uh, your interview with Harrison Walker. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how how that came about? Yes. Uh, so I know I know Harrison uh, personally. I, I've had the pleasure uh, of working with him in the past, uh, and so when I was brainstorming, coming out with you know potential candidates to be to be interviewed, and I said, well, you know. Harrison will provide great insights uh, on this uh, on this topic of diversity, uh, just because of uh, that intelligence unit where where him and I worked at. It, it was very diverse, but at the same time, it, it it didn't matter how diverse it was. There was still not proper representation within our roles, so it was more like that specific. I wouldn't say the company itself, the department because the company was amazing to work for, uh, but the department was more or less just ticking boxes in terms of representation. Was the feeling that you and, and Harrison reached, uh, this is in line with what we're seeing in, in wider society, or uh, this is a particularly bad in our industry? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to answer that because I just don't have enough uh, enough information to to make a, a judgment on that. Uh, but I can tell you from my experience uh, being uh, a a Latino working in intelligence uh, and work having the pleasure of working with with Harrison, uh, a black man working in intelligence. Um, we what we saw is we had a very diverse group, right. Uh, we had er- er- every single, um, almost every single uh, ethnicity being represented within the intelligence units, and it was amazing because er- it, you know we provided with different perspectives based on uh, our culture, our experiences. But at the same time, when it came to the power of our voices, uh, you know uh, how serious certain assessments were taken based on us or uh, our background, um, you could see. Uh, the inequality there, which is curious because, I mean, you're hiring a diverse team, but yet mm. their voices are not being heard at the same level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, I think this this is uh, 
I mean, I think it's great that you had that uh, this interview with Harrison Walker. I think it's one of the the most important things that we can be talking about um, today in in our industry and every other industry. And uh, you know, this is very much a, a very topical debate to be having about inclusion and diversity. And um, I, I'm scrambling to put my thoughts together because I, I feel uh, like there are so many questions I can ask you. Uh, as I said, it, it this is such an, an important one to suss out, but it. Um, I'm going to actually be having in, in my podcast an interview, uh, hopefully soon, with um, someone who, who works in the Canadian side of things in, in private. In, in, well, he actually works for the government. Um, uh, and I won't say more than that because uh, you'll have to tune into to my podcast. But uh, anyway, uh, the point I'm trying to make is we're going to be discussing about diversity. And this is uh, someone who's, um, who's a bit of an authority on the subject and doing a lot to change things from, from within. Uh, and it's been leading me on on this sort of uh, quest about trying to put put all of it together in my head. And one of the questions that I uh, that I keep asking myself is one between diversity and efficiency. And now, what a weird way to frame it. But I guess it's you know going back to the the very beginnings of state intelligence. You know, what, why is it there? Well. You know, the more defensive countries will say national security. Uh, ones that are more engaging in in um, foreign operations will say national interests. Um, you know, this this idea that it's at the at the very vanguard of our nation state, and because of that, it's afforded certain privileges. You don't ask what a spy does. You kind of have the idea that maybe some laws are being bent here and there, but it, it's okay. You know, they know what they're doing. It's it's outside sort of the realm of the usual way of things, and so they're. they're off the hook and maybe in my head i think well the way that they come they justify themselves they in this case are yeah in you know as state intelligence agencies especially ones that are engaged in espionage will say uh okay well we have to be efficient because the russians out there are because the chinese are because if we slack off and if we you know care a little bit too much about the the way of doing the proper way of doing things then hey you know we're going to have a problem a much bigger problem and i think that's been a sort of a tacit understanding between uh, society at large and the intelligence agency i might be completely wrong your reference so you'll you'll step in in a second <laughs> and correct me but um so, but the point I want to get to is there's a foundational value of efficiency almost at all costs in intelligence agencies. And now, uh, you know, especially from BLM onwards, there's uh, a renewed talk uh, about diversity and inclusion, actually, as probably the most foundational aspect of a large part of the population today. So what happens when these clash, when it's like, yeah, okay, I'd love to hire, you know, people of different ethnicities and backgrounds in my organization but hey it's like i've got a tight get i need to get this done and and you know the nuclear codes are missing and you know stuff is there's drama all over it um does this make any sense is there ever an antagonism or is this all just in my head so it doesn't make sense <laughs> i'm just kidding no but look this is my take so when it comes to intelligence and diversity um uh and i'll give you a a, a an example from personal experience. I think you, you have more efficiency uh, and accuracy on intelligence if you if you have that level of inclusion. <clears throat> Here is my personal example. Um, I once worked at an intelligence uh, unit uh, and we were covering the Americas. Uh, 
and I was the only one that was originally from South America. And uh, the, the, my, my other peers, uh, you know, their whole background in, uh, from an academic perspective of intelligence, graduated political science, what have you, uh, and they could do ex very good research. They could understand what was going on uh, in Mexico, for example, or in Argentina with, uh, uh, um, uh, with the different protests. Uh, but the, the difference here was that I, as a minority, had already cultural context that allow me to provide with more insights within my analysis than my peers who only had, uh, it will take them longer to understand certain things and for them to understand certain things they needed to, um, uh, to read more about the history, right? Me growing up uh, there and experiencing a, <laughs> a coup d'etat uh, in, in, in my home country and seeing corruption and seeing how social unrest op uh, it's, it operates in Latin America, uh, it allowed me to have a, a, a more um, um, uh, root cause uh, approach uh, to, uh, to, to, to this issue. Right. Uh, so this is why, uh, from that perspective, I think that uh, intelligence and diversity need to go hand in hand because this is the only way where you can actually have uh, the stronger uh, insights in, in the analysis and you have that added value, that edge over somebody who is, quote unquote, a subject matter expert, but has either just spent a semester overseas, maybe just spent one year in that particular country versus somebody who grew up in that country, was deeply embedded in, in, that, in, in that culture, understands why certain things happen. So that is the competitive advantage for, for intelligence to, to, to have more inclusion. Totally. And I think uh, you've described that perfectly and I'm sold as far as that's concerned. <laughs> I guess uh, this and this is where there's a big difference between the, the private and, and the non-private, because, uh, you know, in a private firm, it makes a complete sense to do, as you've just described, you know, get as many different backgrounds, ethnicities, points of views as you can to understand the world better. But uh, I'm wondering if, when we're talking about close intelligence, we're talking about um, you know national agencies. Uh, there's the that extra um, preoccupation of doing all the vetting. Um, is is this? I mean, is and does that ever get in the way of saying yes? You know, we'd love to have people of all different backgrounds, but every time you visit a country, that's you know one month's work of sending somebody over and asking them for your papers and where have you been and because uh, it's it's a very exhaustive work, isn't it? The vetting process. Yeah, I, I so from my experience dealing with uh, with this type of processes uh, for for the IC, um, it, it it was a longer process than say for somebody who has never left the country, but that's because of my extensive international travel and also um, all the, the foreign nationals that I've met throughout the years, right? Now that doesn't mean that they, they, they're immediately, they turn it down on the seat as a red flag. It's just it, the whole process, the whole background investigation, the counterintelligence process takes longer. Uh, they, they absolutely see the need of people with, uh, with foreign experience because uh, some of them may be able to speak a dialect that maybe people that speak a language don't understand. Uh, again, they may have uh, better cultural insights. Uh, but from that perspective, really, it, it doesn't really get in the way of, of this government intelligence, the IC recruitment process. It's just 
it takes longer. And what usually ends up happening, or at least it was in my case, that by the time they came knocking on the door saying like, okay, everything is ready. I was already, you know, in, in a very sweet spot within my career in private sector intelligence that I said, it doesn't really make sense at this time, uh, going back to an entry level uh, in the government. I mean, it's something that I really wanted to pursue, but uh, yeah, it, 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 it took a long time uh, for the very process. But now this is the thing though. I understand why that is a problem that may be, uh, you know, certain cases may be stuck in country intelligence for a while. But you also have to realize, you know, you have people like uh, um, Aldo James, who was a U.S. national, born here in the United States, betray his country, mm. right? You have issues like Robert Hansen with the FBI, mm. who also spy for the Russians. Right, right, yeah. right. So the fact that somebody has never left the country doesn't really mean that they're going to be loyal to the country. In fact, at least from my point of view, and I do not know what current practitioners think of this, I think that to me, that's a moral liability because if, if, if that person has never been overseas and has never been properly exposed uh, through different cultures, then mm. it may be easier uh, for them to be persuaded by a foreign power. Right. Or it may be that they have this really strong sense of, of patriotism. So that could also be something that they're looking for. Either way, it's hard to say. To add to that as well, I'd say, you know, at the end of the day, do you really want somebody that's never left Nebraska, <laughs> you know, to be deciding important, you know, intelligence? And, uh, and you know, put it together, what, we, what you've just said, which is, um, you know, a multiplicity of uh, backgrounds, uh, points of views, lived experiences can only be a good thing and can only produce better intelligence. So it sounds to me that even if the vetting process takes longer, it's worth it. Yeah, but uh, it, it, well, hold on, this is going to caveat though. Like now it's if you have somebody who spent a lot of time in China, for example, and then has a lot of Chinese contacts, I mean, that that will make it extremely complicated for, for at least in, 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 through my eyes to uh, to, to uh, just because of the current situation, right. right? Or somebody that 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 lived or was born and raised in Iran, for example. Um, yeah. uh, so it, it really depends, right? Yeah. It really depends. Um, yeah, and I think you you I mean uh, you know I hope that the yeah the person has to be considered as well because you you have every kind of stories. I mean you have. Uh, you know, I can I can say for me, I, my I had a childhood friend that was Iranian, and and uh, but you know as as, as Western uh, British as you can imagine. So I, I think it all it, you know as you say, it's it, the vetting process has to be complete and thorough. And at the end of the day, is you can't always assume that just because somebody is uh, grown up on home soil, that's going to automatically work out. Um, uh, you know, it's. I think, like anything in life, it's it's a case by case uh, situation, and it, that certainly was the case for your next episode with Doctor Rafael Cabrera Carrera, uh, and uh, I make a, a very obvious segue here, but <laughs> transitioning into the 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 next episode. Actually, Efren, this is one of my favorite episodes, um, and for my viewers or any new viewer who hasn't watched this episode yet it is episode six in uh, Chiso station it's called private sector intelligence insights from latin america and uh, and i i love this was probably my favorite uh one of your shows um 
and uh, and one of the one of the first things actually uh, inspired me to um, for my own style of, of interview format as well. Uh, I really like that interview, uh, and I saw there was so much uh, so much of our stories as well. Uh, like certainly mine, uh, you know, I could see uh, my own history because I I was doing an undergraduate degree in Argentina when I was uh, about 10 years ago and I decided to transfer to finish it in New York and partly it was because I you know there was no private intelligence industry in Latin America at all so you know immediately I had the question okay do I grant stay and graduate here and get a job here and in in a field that doesn't exist or you know do I try my luck uh, yes, you know, in the in the in the first world or whatever you want to call it, um, and so that was really interesting because I think you know hearing hearing uh, Raphael's point of view, uh, you know, I think he came to a similar conclusion that it's it's it, it's growing but it's still so uh, limited, isn't it? The, the field of uh, private intelligence in in Latin American countries. So uh, I, I I really like Rafa so much that he's actually one of one of the chiefs of station now. So he's he's part of the podcast now. Uh, but you know, it was a phenomenal conversation with him. Uh, there is there is this thing about working in private sector intelligence, right? Um, uh, companies usually have a a solid footprint in Latin America. And the way that it works is you usually have the analysts here in the United States at headquarters or, or whatever. You, you may have some uh, security managers in country, but not in every country. Some of them may be overseeing different, different countries, right? Um, but it has never really been explored. How, what, to what level is this profession being developed in the region? And uh, speaking with Rafa, give us a, a, a at least from the Mexican perspective, a good solid understanding in terms of methodology. Like, has anybody ever asked what methodology uh, do they use in Latin America and how does it differ from the methodology that open source intelligence analysts use here in, in the United States? Well, you know, it was surprising to, to discover that uh, here in the United States, we're very, um, we're very lucky to have access to different tools that facilitate the collection of information. Uh, and as a consequence, and I hate to say it, but a lot of analysts have gotten extremely lazy collecting information because we're being spoiled. It's, mm. You know, it's, it's, it's a luxury that we have. Now in Mexico, according to what Rafa was saying, it's the total opposite. So you don't really have access to these different platforms. So you have to do it an old school way, old school collection of information. So that leads, for example, Rafa and the people that do that in Mexico to have a better understanding of information, to have a, a more careful handling of information nowadays. Do you, do you mean, does, um, sorry to interrupt you here, but yeah. does that mean more like on the human side? Is that what he means by old school? Uh, uh, old school, I mean data mining like actually going and manually collecting that information from open sources on the internet. It could also be, um, uh, you know, human intelligence. So human intelligence is one of the, the collection disciplines that all is also present uh, in the private sector. It's not just for uh, governments to use. I mean, you can elicit information from an academic that is human intelligence or from a professional, a consultant that is human intelligence. But it, the, the difference is that we don't do it for, um, 
for espionage purposes. It's it's just human intelligence. It's information coming from a human, which then you turn into actionable intelligence. That's all it is. Uh, so from that from that perspective, so but in terms of methodology in Mexico, they are more in touch with old school collections. So they don't have a platform where they immediately have all the alerts and the geofencing or anything like that. They have to do it manually. And that takes a long time to, to do. Uh, but they have that. If they have access to tools, that's great. But I don't this- know why I'm thinking in my head, Efren, uh, somebody, <laughs> some, some back office worker in Mexico clicking through Facebook uh, profile pictures uh, until until they find the right person they're looking for. But, but you're, you're not off. I mean, I used to do that. I, I used to do that when I used to do investigations, right? I didn't have access to uh, to uh, a third-party intelligence providers uh, to to tell them like, hey, I'm looking for, for this person because he, he, he stole proprietary information. Can you look? him up and you know so we can then escalate to legal and take necessary you know measures um but that's what i had to do and that is basically the old school method of collection you have to go it, it is time consuming profile by profile, profile you know until you find the target right knowing how to how to maneuver around the the, the, the overflow of information uh, but now you have many many great tools out there that facilitate this but what happens when these tools go offline or are under maintenance? You if call Rafael. <laughs> you call Rafael, right? <laughs> but if, if, if you don't have access to Rafael, then you, you, you pretty much, uh, you have to figure out. And if, mm. if, you don't, if you're not in tune with that methodology, then it will take you longer than usual. So that was the key, the, the, the most, that was the principal finding from my discussion with Rafael in terms of methodology. Um, I really like the way that he does it, that he, he said that they, they're currently doing it in, in Mexico because it is the way that I learned how to do it here in the United States. I don't really focus so much on platforms. I, I do the trust but verify approach. Um, yeah, but, and, and, and I think it's great that you can see the value in that. You know, I think it's um, it's it's too easy to just assume everything USA does is better or superior and everything Mexico does is, you know, 20 years behind and wrong. Uh, it's all very situational. And I, and I like the, the way that you can contextualize it and saying, yeah, okay, it's old school, but hey, every one of those analysts uh, working in Mexico know their stuff. You have to when you're doing it uh, that way. Oh man, respect. I mean, I, I I believe it was episode number two or number three that where I interviewed Cynthia Hetherington and Arno Reuser for him understanding of, uh, of of information itself. It's just not necessary because you're being given the end product. You don't really get exposed on, on, on the whole collection process. Uh, so from that perspective, I guess, you know, the, the, Mexico, the Mexican experience is absolutely in line to uh, to what Arno Reuser uh, and, and and also what Cynthia Hetherington teach, uh, uh, they are more online. That that's the way to go for me as an intelligence professional. I will suggest for any practitioner to always go that route because sometimes you may have people who are uh, in very junior positions collecting that information, or maybe people who don't have the cultural background. And if you are a subject matter expert in the region, you lived in the region. You were raised in the region, then you have a, a more complete view. Uh, so for me, it's it, even if I get information from a vendor, I always, always, always vet it myself, even if it takes, you know, an hour. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point because um, 
the word data evokes this this image of numbers that are set in stone, perfect, uh, immaculate, in another dimension. And when we, but when we talk about data in our context, it isn't always free of bias. It isn't always neutral. It isn't always perfect. Uh, you know, uh, fundamentally, at the end of the day, whenever we talk about intelligence, talking about humans, human society, it doesn't exist outside of that. And whenever you talk about human society, you talk about sub subjective uh, interpretations, you talk about um, imprecise and imperfect arts. And I think it's so important for us as analysts and practitioners to realize that there, there isn't such a thing as uh, bias-free data. Uh, and I think actually this ties together with your conversation with Harrison Walker with the importance of diversity, because actually, you know, one of the only ways to realize um, you, you, the, the imperfectness of data is to have different viewpoints to come in and, uh, and see it from, a, from different backgrounds. You know, I think the example that you just gave is perfect. You know, you're someone that understands the region, you grew up in the region, you would understand better than any possible junior that comes from, you know, somewhere else fresh out of university uh, and say, wait, hang on, you know, that can't, that can't possibly be right. Or, you know, they might tell you this, but the reality is different or the other way around, uh, you know, the reality is this, but they're telling you that. Um, and that requires a lot of quick thinking and, and almost, I would say, in, intuitive thinking as well, which I think is a, is a really important part of the equation. One one of the uh, and just to, to finish off here with with your interview, Rafa, Rafa, because I, I could keep going for for hours. But one of the things that I really liked uh, that he touched on was um, well, he he was talking about networks, connections, and liaisons within uh, uh, intelligence. Uh, networks outside but in within latin america he actually came to uh talk about the cartels and as actually you know that uh, the the kind of networks connections and liaisons that are happening between uh in this case i think he was mentioning the mexican and the Bra brazilian it might be it might be colombian and brazil um but anyway latin american drug cartels the the kind of network and cooperation they have is uh unprecedented i mean they're really sophisticated methods of communicating with one another with staying in touch with one another with mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of professional professional uh associate unprofessional associations uh and of course it you know it but at the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, hang on, right? Uh, really thinking outside the box there. And apologies to any of my audiences uh, if this is a, a sensitive topic. But can we actually think of these drug cartels as the most successful private intelligence uh, networks in Latin America? I mean, it, it's a, it sounds ridiculous. But if you bear with me, Efren, uh, it sounds to me like what they're doing is making great use of intelligence well absolutely uh i mean in order for you to to operate in in the black market and smuggle people weapons drugs exotic animals you gotta, yeah you gotta be good at what you do <laughs> right yeah. you, you, you gotta make sure that you have um an approach like that uh you need to be able to to have proper surveillance and and, and things like that so it's i mean it, it's it's something that has been uh i mean I, I forgot um which cartel was known as the kgb uh of of colombia <clears throat> but because that they had extremely great uh uh a, a very good surveillance program to keep uh 
to have knowledge on what their the adversaries, rival cartels were doing, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say they're private sector intelligence you know, because they, they don't see um, intelligence or traditional intelligence the same way that we do, right? right. I, I will just say that they they are um, uh, successful illegal ent- entrepreneurs using whatever resources they have to uh, to keep their th- themselves in in this sort of illegal uh, business, and they gotta get creative anyways if they want to keep smuggling things. Right. Well, I mean, they're not going anywhere, right? We we have seen. I'm not an expert on uh, drug cartel history, but it's obvious that uh, they've kept up with the times, and that we have we as in you know the, the rest of society have consistently uh, underestimated um, their capabilities, and that's why we're still struggling with this today. But I I found it interesting, and I'm certainly not showering any kind of praise or or <laughs> uh, or, uh, or asking our audiences to consider a career in illicit in uh, businesses. But what I will say is, you know, from an academic uh, point of view, it's interesting how the, we can talk about almost an organic. Uh, use of private intelligence that very much, as you suggest, you know, just happened. It wasn't anything professional or planned. It just sort of they needed to do it, and uh, and I thought, you know, this would be great for a PhD, and you know, <laughs> uh, cross cross analyzing the uh, the intelli- the intelligence uses and applications within drug cartels and within the rest of the world, and how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, just just take a look at uh, at um, uh, Los Cetas. For example, in Mexico, right? The original Losetas they had military training, right? And then they, they used this uh, uh, to their advantage in order to operate in the uh, in, in in the underworld. And so, it would be in, it would be interesting, you know, to note that w- the experience of that of Losetas and the other famous uh, infamous gangs in Mexico, uh, whether that has had any effect on uh, intelligence, both within the Mexican government and um, and and also the the private use of intelligence. I mean, um, you know, in any other war, whichever war we can speak of in human history, uh, when it's all said and done, uh, there's an evolution in in warfare itself. Uh, you know, the, there's a price to pay for it, and mm-hmm. you know, at the end, you know, we can certainly World War II is a great example of this. Uh, there's a technological and um, organizational revolution that that changes how the next war will look like. I wonder if the we can say the same about the the war on drugs uh, about whether we have changed in the methods that we use and the tools that we use. So and this is the problem though with the war on drugs that no matter no matter how much money you allocate to the problem, you know, no matter how much you're trying to fix the borders, no matter how many efforts there are to thwart uh, the, the smuggling of, of these uh, illegal substances uh, to the United States or you know to, to Europe, it all comes down to the demand, right? If it's going to be a, 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 a stable demand, you bet these guys are going to keep producing and smuggling. And they're going to keep becoming extremely creative. I mean, through the use of submarines in the 80s to smuggle drugs to now the, uh, the detection of drones carrying drugs across the border. I mean, they, they get very smart, right? Mm. But this is not going to go away anytime soon until there is no demand for it. Demand is really what drives uh, these cartels to success. Yeah. 
I think it's it's an interesting subject, but uh, again, it's it's one that uh, has to be studied further. Uh, neither me nor you are, are uh, experts on on this issue, but uh, I thought it was an interesting point that Raphael made, and that uh, certainly could be talked about further. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cast Podcast. This series is co-hosted by myself, Thomas Brancato, host of MI Cynic, and my exceptional colleague, Efren Torres, host at Cheezer Station. If you enjoyed this conversation, please stay tuned for more as we continue our collaboration in the future. Likewise, you can find a regular podcast over at MI Cynic and Cheezer Station, respectively. Please feel free to reach out to us for your comments and feedback regarding this episode by visiting ghost-intel.com or micynic.com or simply by using your favourite search engine. We hope you're looking forward to our next episode and wish each of you a great day.